Amen. Thank you, choir and, and praise team and musicians, reminding us that our story is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our story. His story is our story. And the story is true. Thanks, Brad. The story is life-giving. The story is aligning with reality behind the curtain of what's going on. The story will sustain you, Jack and Ben and Aaron and Allie, as you go from here to, to pursue what God has for you. I encourage you to lash your heart to the ancient mast that the story will carry you. And the story is indeed good and the story is indeed true. Happy birthday, Ben. Uh, did I see, I saw an epic catch you made. Was that some ultimate Frisbee? Is that what that was? That's awesome. I love ultimate Frisbee. That's great, man. I hope you uh, can play in, in college. I was playing in college on a team called Slow Kids at Play. That was uh, our team name was Slow Kids at Play. Uh, we were not very good, Ben, but I'm sure you will be much better. So congratulations, 18th birthday. It's exciting. Ben's parents, of course, are Sue and Mark Newton, who've been missionaries in uh, Africa for many years doing uh, medical missions, and uh, his dad teaches over at Vandy now uh, doing CRNA training, uh, teaching nurse anesthetists to go out into the places where God is moving and to administer uh, you know, anesthesia in such a way that not only provides helpful surgical methods, but also shares the good news of Jesus in places where it's desperately needed. So uh, glad to have the Newtons represented today. Allie, of course, the daughter of our communications director, and Jack, my neighbor, who uh, I, I got to know as a young lad at uh, Forest Hills when I was there as well. And then Erin, a longtime member of this church and of this youth group, I drove by her house recently and saw the Erin graduate sign in the yard and just said a prayer over her and her family. It's an exciting time for, for all of you guys. Uh, thank you for celebrating. Evan's done a great job uh, as our youth pastor this last year. Not necessarily what he signed up for being a youth pastor during COVID uh, when youth ministry is largely predicated upon gathering. And when we can't gather, it's very difficult to do youth ministry, kind of like Aaron was hired, had two great months before COVID really hit and then uh, had to make some adjustments. So thank you all for being flexible. Thank you for being the family of faith still. Thank you for continuing to be the church and continuing to see lives transformed and changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to continue our series in Isaiah called Safe House, looking at Isaiah chapter 29 today. I encourage you to turn your Bibles if you have them. Uh, we're going to talk about God's ability to save us, to provide a safe dwelling place for us, a safe house, but not always in the ways that we would envision for ourselves, maybe not in the way that we would prefer to have a safe house. You know, when I think of the term safe house, I think of all those spy movies, you know, like the, the Jason Bourne movies, and the, the safe house is always, you know, this place that is set up by the agency, you know, some governmental, like the CIA or some, you know, big mission spy agency, MI6 or something. And they set up a, a secret location that the spy can go to if everything goes wrong. If, if it's a last resort, the, the spy can retreat to the safe house. And it's usually behind the scenes. Sometimes the spy has no idea where the safe house is, or even if there is a safe house. 
Therefore, someone from the agency who knows the big picture, who sees what's going on behind the scenes, has to reveal the safe house to the spy. They have to direct them to the safe house and get them there. Therefore, there's a great deal of trust that's required on the part of the spy, that this agency representative knows what they're talking about, that there actually is a safe house, and that this person knows the way to the safe house. We're going to see in scripture today that Isaiah points us towards the safe house. The question for us is, do we believe he actually knows where he's going and that there is a place that God is preparing for us? They have to trust in these spy movies that the safe house is a, a, a place where they can actually let their guard down, where they can dwell secure, safe from their enemies and, and from anything that's going on around them. And it enables them ultimately to fulfill their mission. That's very important as well. And like I said, the safe house is where the spy has to go when all the other options fail. The, all the cleverness, all the resources, all the cool gadgets that the spies have, when those things let the spy down, then they have to retreat to the safe house. When they're betrayed by those closest to them, that's always a common plot twist in these movies. When their uh, you know, friends let them down, when the mission just goes horribly wrong, that's when they're instructed to head to the safe house. I don't know about you, but in this life, things don't always go the way we expect them to. Sometimes our cleverness, our resources fail us. And you know, in this life, we rarely have clarity, certainty about what path to take or where to, to follow. So we therefore live by faith or we live by doubt. You're either a believer or a skeptic, but certainty is elusive. There's so much that we just don't know. And so much of what we do know is infinitely more complex and nuanced than we ever believed. So the academics, you know, would, would tell us that we, we go this kind of postmodern route where there is no truth. There is no absolute truth. But we as Christians say we're going to stand firmly on the word of God. We're going to bet our lives that the gospel is true, that the gospel is life-giving. And sometimes we can't build our lives on that firm foundation until our old foundation is wiped away. Sometimes it only happens when a complete failure happens in our lives. Sometimes it only happens when we, everything we thought we knew comes crashing down, and that's the moment of our biggest breakthrough. Sometimes it takes the old foundation being wiped out for us to establish our lives firmly on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it takes a radical redirect and that ends up being the best thing to ever happen to us and to the mission agency that we represent because we end up at the safe house, able to fulfill our mission for our sake and more importantly, for the agency. So when God surprises you in a way that you didn't see coming, when you feel like your prayers are, are just not being heard, just hitting the ceiling and, and bouncing back, when you can't understand what God's up to, or can't even tell that God's there at all. Maybe you don't feel like he's even present at all. 
That doesn't mean that God is not actively working behind the scenes. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean he's not working all things together for your good and for his glory. You're just in those moments moving to a deeper level of trust, a deeper level of understanding that God's plan is good, that it is best, that he is still in charge. You're understanding what it means to fully trust him more, to surrender more deeply to him. You know, I was watching Carlos sing up here, this is my story, this is my song. His cousin just died of COVID. I was thinking for him to say, I'm still standing firm on the promises of God. That's when it really matters, right? That's when it really matters. I was talking to Clyde Herring, whose uh, wife died a couple weeks ago with breast cancer and dementia. And he said, I've never felt heaven to be more real than I do right now. What we're betting our lives on in those moments of deep crisis really matters. So what we're going to see today in our text in Isaiah 29 is that there takes this deeper trust level in order to get to the safe house. Before we dive into our text, remember last week, we didn't necessarily go over this verse, but in chapter 28, there's a cool verse in verse 21. I want us to start with that to see how our God does things that appear to be strange work to us. Look at Isaiah 28, 21. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. No, 21. Sorry. Do we have 28, 21? I'll read it if we don't have it. Thanks, Esau. I have it in my Bible. <laughs> 28, 21 says, for the Lord will raise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed. And to work his work. Alien is his work. Strange is his deed. Alien is his work. It doesn't say that God's work is hateful work. It doesn't say that God's work is harmful work. It doesn't even say that God's work is absurd or crazy work. It just says that it's strange, it's foreign, it's alien to us. We're going to see more and more about this work that appears so strange to us. You know, we all tend to let our own expectations and preconceived notions of who God is shape our perception, uh, shape uh, how we perceive God to be, rather than let the Bible surprise us and challenge us to really see God for who he is in all of his complexity. He is not like you. He is not like me. Thank God. <laughs> He's so much better. He's so much better than we are, but we tend to shape him into our own image in our fallen flesh. That's how we tend to perceive of God. We're going to see here that God's work is always good. It's always life-giving, but not in the ways that we would expect. We're going to see here how God promises us a safe house, not only a refuge from our enemies in this world, but a place that he himself has prepared for us where we can rest securely, where we can dwell safe from our enemies, and where we can flourish and recharge and fulfill our mission, our God-given mission to love God, love people, and make disciples. So Isaiah is going to reveal this to us in a way that we never could have imagined that God's safe house is not what we would ever expect. We're going to see that in three sections. 
in chapter 29 today. First, we're going to see that the way to the safe house involves trusting in the victory of God over all. That's point number one. In order to get to the safe house, we have to trust in the victory of God over all. This is the seventh Sunday of Easter. This is the Easter season when we remember that God triumphed over death, over sin, over the power of the law. He triumphed. He's Christus victor, right? He won the victory. That's who our God is. We have to trust in his victory over everything. Look at 29 verse 1. Ah, Ariel, Ariel. This is Hebrew. This is not Little Mermaid. The city where David encamped. Add year to year. Let the feast run their round. Ariel in Hebrew, we don't know exactly what it means, but most likely it implies the, the stone floor of an altar where sacrifices are burned and consumed. We know that Jerusalem was the place where uh, sacrifices were offered on the altar at the temple. That, that thousands, if not millions, of Jewish pilgrims made their way up to Jerusalem, up to the Temple Mount during the four feast uh, special festival times in order to make sacrifices to the Lord. Burnt offerings that stood in place of their sin. The, the blood of the animals that were, had their throats cut, that represented the death that we incurred, that we deserved by being born sinful. Isaiah's talking to Jerusalem. He's talking to the holy city that contained that majestic temple and the holy of holies where God's presence dwelt. It was the city that King David established as the capital city for God's chosen people. But Isaiah calls the city Ariel, the place where sacrifices are made. And the sacrifices, again, remind God's people that though their sins are many, God has provided a substitution for their own death. The blood on the altar that resulted from the, the brokenness, the sinfulness of God's people. And though the altar fire kept burning day after day and the priests stood there to make sacrifices, nothing changed. That's why Isaiah says, year after year, just keep doing it. Just keep going through the motions. Keep sacrificing animal after animal. Add year to year, let the feast run their round again. It's become an empty ritual. You know, if we have the big Christmas cantata here with the musicians and the poinsettias every year, but we don't lift high the name of Jesus Christ, we're missing something. Empty tradition, empty ritual isn't just about going through the motions. It's about celebrating that God came to save us, to rescue us. We need to not let those rituals become meaningless. The entire sacrificial system in Jerusalem had become routine and hollow. And no matter how many lambs they offered, no matter how many goats or, or doves were, were burned up on the altar, their sins were still hanging over them like a dark cloud. The problem here is that Jerusalem doesn't see either their privilege or their peril. They don't, they're not marveling, they're not blown away at the fact that God has chosen them and set them apart as his special possession, his own family. And neither do they realize the peril of ignoring him, of rejecting him, of, of going through the motions without actually following him with their whole 
hearts or with any of their hearts. They know the living God. He dwells in their midst, but their faith in him has grown stagnant and cold. Though the altar fire never keeps, never stops burning, they've lost the, both the fire of God's wrath, the, the fire of God's anger, and the fire of God's love and grace and mercy. They have neither that reverent fear of God nor a sense of joy in his presence. They've lost both of those. I think they both go together, don't they? They're just going through the routine. So if the Lord sees this routine, he decides to wake them up. Look at verse two. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel, a hearth, an altar hearth. And I will encamp against you all around, and will besiege you with towers, and I will raise cedros against you. Jerusalem will indeed become a place where the fire of God burns, but not in the way that they would like. Empty, hollow worship is burned up like dry kindling. Isaiah shows us that we have a choice. Either our worship will be consumed with God or it will be consumed by God. It will be burned up and, and brought to nothing. That's when God does his strange work. What does this mean? He's going to encamp against Jerusalem. He's going to besiege Jerusalem with towers raise siege works against Jerusalem. We've been hearing about the threat of Assyria this whole time, and, and now it's not Assyria who threatens Jerusalem, it's God himself who's besieging the city that David established. What, why in the world would he do this? When God shows up, th there's nowhere to hide. There's no more pretending. And pride itself is brought to nothing. When God shows up, we are done. In his great love and mercy, though, sometimes God humbles us so that we're forced to reckon with reality. We're done playing games at that point. God brings us low for our own good. Look at verse 4. You will be brought low from the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. It's going to be a low time for God's people. From the dust, your speech shall whisper. I'm sure you've all been there at some point. If you haven't, you will be. When you can't even get the words out, when you don't even know what to say, when you're so hoarse from crying that you can't even make a sound, what does God say to us in those moments? Romans 8, 26 and 27, beautiful promise. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You've been there before? If you haven't, like I said, you will be at some point. Here's the deal for us. If you are God's people, then God's victory, even his victory over his own people, is for our good. When God wins, we win. Even when God beats us, it's for our good. 
Our victory is his victory. His victory is our victory. If you're a born again believer in Jesus Christ, here's the thing. God will never give you what you deserve. <laughs> Thank God. He'll never give you what you deserve. In his great grace, he will give you what you need. And sometimes what you need is to be brought low. Sometimes you need encouragement. He gives it. Sometimes you need confrontation. He gives it. Ray Ortland says in his beautiful commentary on this passage, at all levels of the multi-layered complexity of your being, right down to the very roots of what you are, beyond your own self-understanding, God can see how you need victory and how you need defeat. And he enters into your subjectivity with mercies both severe and sweet. I think that's very wise. But the Lord is faithful to his people. He still cares about the children of Jacob, his own special family. He's never going to destroy us completely, even though he brings us low. In verses five through eight, he promises to swoop in at the 11th hour and to rescue Jerusalem. Look at verse five. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust. The Hebrew word there is chaff. You know, that stuff that comes off the corn as you're threshing it. Just blown away like chaff. And the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. There's that word again. In, in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise. Maybe not the way we want to see God come with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. It sounds terrifying because it is terrifying. It's not like a visit from grandma. This is a visit from the Lord. And when he comes, he comes to rescue, but it is a big transformation. And first we see Jerusalem besieged by God, and now we see Jerusalem saved by God. We see her enemies blown away like dust. You know, our safe house is secure, not only because God has won over us, but because he's won over our enemies too. Don't forget that. He's not just bringing us low, he's bringing our enemies low as well. And that leads us to the promises that they're not gonna win in the end. The enemies of the church are not going to win in the end. God will. In verses nine to 14, we're gonna see the second section in this passage. Number two of getting to the safe house Point number two in, in how you get to the safe house involves trusting the mystery of God over all. Once we learn to trust God's victory over us, over our enemies, then we can trust the mystery of God over all. Again, we are not God. God's people, you know, have been given his written word. In this example, they've been given the, the Torah, the law of God. They have the promised land. They have the, the, the land flowing with milk and honey. They have the capital city of Jerusalem. They have the temple, and yet they still don't get it. Isaiah's just frustrated with them at this point. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, the seers, and has covered your heads, the seers. They don't get it. 
They don't get it. They don't understand what God is up to. They don't see the reality of what's happening behind the veil of this world. These people would rather not know the way to the safe house. They just keep driving around trying to find it on their own or trying to avoid the safe house and deal with their enemies on their own. But the ways of God are ultimately mysterious to us. It doesn't make sense to us what God tells us sometimes. But we trust in God's ways against the prevailing wisdom and logic of this world. People see us and say, what in the world? Why would you do that? That sounds crazy. When we were in Birmingham, there was a, a, a school that was created in Fairfield, Alabama. Fairfield on the west side of Birmingham used to be a, a nice, quaint little, you know, steel boom town. Had fallen into dark times. Poverty and despair were rampant in that town. And a church said, we're going to start a school called Restoration Academy right in the middle of it. And they told their teachers, hey, you want to work here? Great. All that we ask is that you pick up everything and move to Fairfield. <laughs> and the teacher said, okay. And they did. And I talked to several teachers and said, oh yeah, how many times have you had your house broken into? Three? Oh, I've had mine broken in seven times. Uh, how many times have you had your car stolen? Oh yeah, I found it down the block the other day. Yeah, they moved to a very crime-ridden, uh, poverty-ridden area in order to incarnationally be the people of God, the presence of Jesus Christ himself. And last I heard, 100% of the graduates from Restoration Academy got accepted into college, university, or military. It's incredible work that God's doing there at Restoration Academy. But people say, what are you doing? Why in the world would you move your family? You have small kids. Why would you move to Fairfield? That doesn't make any sense. They'd say it's where the Lord has called us. That's all that matters. We're following his plans, not the world's. The ways of God are mysterious. We're so focused on the things of this world that are concrete, the things that we can perceive and take in through our five senses with our limited understanding, and then we lose sight of the mysterious things of God. We have no sense of wonder of the spiritual reality that's behind the veil of the things of this world. You know, I was a youth pastor for 12 years, and one of the things I kept reading on youth ministry blogs and stuff was that, oh, teenagers, they've lost the ability to wonder. They're, they're not wowed by anything. They're not in awe of anything. And, and a lot of adults that write about teenagers like to point the fingers, like, you know, it's always the youth. It's always those teenagers, you know. But what I'm learning now as a senior pastor that a lot of adults have lost the ability to be in awe that a lot of adults have no sense of wonder at the majesty of who God is. They've lost a sense of awe at the gospel and the power of what God's done for us through Jesus Christ. It's not just teenagers, I can assure you that. It's all of us that are tempted to trust in what we can see and touch and smell and sense. You know, a lot of these adults that have lost this sense of awe and teenagers are just going through the motions. And you would expect these people in Jerusalem to be judged by God and just wiped out, right? That he would say, y'all are empty with your religion. I'm just gonna start over with another people. I'm gonna wipe you out. But that's not what happens. He doesn't punish them for their unbelief. Instead, he shows up to wow them. Look at verse 13. The Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, 
and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again wipe them out. No, I will do wonderful things with this people. That doesn't mean like give them a bunch of candy. It means wonder, show them wonder with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Instead of wiping them out, God says, I'm gonna show up and wow them. You know, the wonders of God defy all human learning. I'm amazed, we have so many people in our church with advanced degrees who've been, you know, eight, nine, 10, 12 years of college and grad school, and they know so much, it's amazing. I'm in awe of them, and I'm, you know, embarrassed to talk to them sometimes, and they try to explain things to me. I can't even know what they're talking about. All these engineers and other brilliant people in this church, but all the wisdom of human beings doesn't amount to an anthill in the kingdom of God. It's nothing. It, these, the cool thing about these people with advanced degrees in our church is that they're so humble and they know that the spiritual reality is infinitely more important than the physical reality of this world and that they're not disconnected. So many people who claim to be Christians, though, are spiritually dead. They only go through the motions of church and religious practice as a means really to avoid the real God, as a means of not having to deal with God. They're just trying to control God. They're trying to manipulate God. They're trying to keep God in a nice little box. This is the, the elder brother in the prodigal son story, right? He just doesn't really love the father. He's just trying to obey the father so he can get the father's stuff. He's just trying to get a goat for a party with his friends, not with his actual father. His obedience isn't born out of a mutual love relationship with his dad. You know, if you feel like God has poured upon you today a spirit of deep sleep, like these people in Jerusalem, like you've been spiritually dead on the inside, know this, God can wake you up. He can wake you up just like he did these people in Jerusalem. All you have to do is bring your spiritual emptiness out into the open, quit hiding. And if you come out of your hiding, so will God. And he will do a new wonder in your life that you can't even imagine. Finally, the third point, the way to the safe house means trusting in the sovereignty of God overall. Trusting that God is in charge of every molecule, every atom in the universe. When I was a young college student at Belmont University and studying religion and theology, I, I learned about this concept of God's sovereignty and I was like, well, that's bad. I don't like that because I want to have freedom. I don't like the idea that God's in charge of everything. I want to be you know, in charge of me and have control over my stuff. <laughs> Sounds like a 19-year-old college student, doesn't it? That's, that's how I was. It wasn't until later that I got to understand that God's sovereignty is a good thing and we should rejoice in it. Psalm 115 verse three says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it nice that God does all that he pleases? It's actually a good thing because our God is not some kind of oppressive overlord. He doesn't reduce our ability to be free. He actually frees us with his sovereignty. You know, our culture is obsessed with being free and being autonomous, and that's not anything new. Look at verse 15. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord, your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? 
Who knows us? Are we famous yet? Are we influencers yet? Is somebody going to pay me to sell their stuff on social media? Who sees us? I'm on TV right now. <laughs> yeah, we had the friends from Friends Life coming in here. Uh, Logan, they were dancing downstairs in the fellowship hall on Thursday. I went down there and one of them said, hey, I saw you on my TV 30. I was like, I'm famous. They see us. <laughs> That's our culture. That sounds familiar, right? People say, I, I got to be seen so that I can pursue my truth and get my own truth out there. I'm so tired of hearing that because I've seen people follow that path and it doesn't lead anywhere good. But we're not capable of being God. We can't generate truth, but he can. We can't make sense of this world, but he can. He created it. We can't figure out our part in something bigger, but he can. He's got a place for us. Our freedom is only found in living out what is actually true, not what we want to be true. Isn't it great that God is sovereign? That's really all our message. We're about to go off the air right now. But today, will you put your trust in God's sovereignty overall, in his mystery overall, and in his victory overall? We're going to keep going, read a couple more verses before we close here. Humans tend to twist and distort reality to fit our purposes and the way we want things to be. Look at verse 16. 29, 16. Do we have that? I bet we do. Nope. I'll read it from my Bible. <laughs> 29, 16. Isaiah talks about how people twist things and distort the ways of God. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? No, of course not. Or the thing he formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. No, people twist things around, but God sets them right. God remains sovereign and he sets all the wrongs right. Look at verse 17 to 19. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. This is where the sovereign God is taking us. He takes all the mighty human achievements, the mighty forest of Lebanon, and cuts it down and turns it into a simple field that produces good fruit. And people rejoice. The meek obtain fresh joy. The poor exult in the Holy One of Israel. When the best of human striving gets reduced to nothing, that's when the meek and the poor rejoice at God's provision and providence and sovereignty. And that's always been God's sovereign plan. It's not anything new to him, what he's doing in this world. It's not like he's never had this plan until just now and thought of it. And it will continue until that day when Jesus returns. Look at verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham thousands of years ago, who said this concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall be no more ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. 
And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. That is where the sovereign God is taking us. Are we on board with it or not? Are we trusting in his ability to take us to the safe house and establish us there secure under his watch? The question for us today is, are we going to keep running around like a spy who's trying to figure out how things fell apart and try to put it all back together? Again, I was talking to a church member about a really painful time in his life, about a divorce that he'd gone through, and how he's trying to scramble and, and, and put all the pieces back together himself. And it wasn't until he surrendered to the Lord and said, God, I can't do it. And God took over and made beauty come out of ashes and made this beautiful restoration and, and glorious new life and new birth come out of a painful and tragic circumstance. We can't do it on our own. We're going to have to trust in the victory of God overall, even the victory over ourselves. Because when God wins, we win. It will mean trusting in the mystery of God overall, remembering that behind the veil of this world lies a deeper and truer reality. I don't think truer is a word. Don't use that on your paper, you college uh, bound people, but it brings a deeper reality, a truer reality than anything this world can offer. And if we want to go to the safe house, we're going to have to trust in the sovereignty of God overall, rejoicing that he controls every molecule of creation, working all things together for our good and for his glory. Do you believe that today? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your word promises that you are in control, that you're fully on your throne, that nothing takes you by surprise, that you are sovereign over all. And God, in our finite understanding, we can't comprehend why you do things as you do. But God, we trust that we only see in part, we see as though through a mirror darkly, you see in whole. We see just one little tiny part of the story. You see the beginning and the end because you wrote it. And God, help us to embrace your victory, even over our own lives. When you come and, and besiege our hearts, may we receive your visitation with trembling, yes, but with open arms, knowing that whatever work you've come to do in our lives is going to be for our good and for your glory. God, when everything comes crashing down, may we fully surrender and learn to live into your goodness and grace on a deeper level. We pray this in the high and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now. I want to encourage you, if you, whatever your response is that you need to make in your heart today, that you will surrender more fully to him. If you've never become a Christian, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, there's no better time to do so than right now. I'd love to be here and talk to you about it right now, about what it means to lay down all that you are and say that Jesus is Lord of my life and of my heart, that I'm going to make his story my story and my song for the rest of my life and after my life. Maybe you need to join Woodmont Baptist Church and say, I'm in. I want to be a part of what God's doing here. I want to join as a member and be a part of this family of faith for this season of my life. 
We encourage you, uh, church membership is an important uh, part of our church. We believe it's very important to officially unite yourself with this family of faith so that you can be on the team, so that you can encourage one another and uh, be a part of what God's doing here. Maybe you've never been baptized and you say, I need to, to follow Christ's example of believer's baptism and go underwater to show that I've died to myself and that I've been raised into a whole new life with Jesus. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time, don't leave without having dealt with God. Let's stand and sing our hymn of response. I'll be here to receive you if you want to come talk.